text for our Easter tide is, look, I am making all things new. And what we want to do over these next few weeks is to take that idea and somehow talk about it um, in conversation with the reality that it doesn't seem to always be the case that things are becoming new. And given the daily news of the world's problems, few people would think that the resurrection of Jesus signaled the inbreaking of God's new world. And casual observers, of course, would be easily forgiven for thinking something like this, that God, if there is one who's interested in this world, seems to lose most of the time. Seems to lose most of the time at rooting out evil and injustice and sickness and disease, etc. Yet as followers of Jesus, we seek to live into this post-resurrection reality that, look, I am making everything new. And so during this season of Easter, we want to learn together without denial. Those are two really important words for the next few weeks. Without denial. I mean, if there's anything I, f- I feel like I know just as a human being and as a decades-long pastor working with human beings, that the one thing you do with reality is put your face in it. And denying it is just not good for anybody. It's not good for your soul. It's not good for your families and marriages and friendships. It's not good for the world. It's not good for anybody. It's a fearful thing sometimes to put your face in reality, but often the fearful thing to do is the right thing to do. So without denial, we're going to try to learn to follow Jesus in a world with its seemingly intractable human problems, by trying to cultivate and hold to this biblical vision of God, indeed making all things new. Many of Jesus' parables were told to help us with this kind of challenge. I don't have time to go over them this morning, but if you can think in your mind of, for instance, Matthew 13 and those parables, I think of the parable of the mustard seed, you know, this tiny seed that grows into this substantial tree or substantial shrub, Um, uh, they would have called it a tree, we might have called it a shrub. But the point remains that this new world, though it be tiny and seem insignificant, has been born and it is growing. And what we want to do beginning this morning and over Eastertide is to learn to see the signs of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. And this morning I want to say against the backdrop of the big cultural shifts that are happening around us. So let me name just three of them just to kind of get get your imagination working. Um, We can't say anymore the advent. We could maybe say the advent or deepeningism of pluralism. Just the notion that sits in almost everybody's mind and deep in people's guts that there's always one, more than one way of looking at things. There's always, always, always more than one perspective. And true enough, except for that it begins then to erode confidence in my perspective. Like I want to believe what Cindy just sang. God's name is majestic, (gasps) but that's just my perspective. So then now that erodes my confidence in it, right? Because most of the world would not think that's true. So who am I 
In my limited perspective of theology, what does majesty mean? Who's God? Do you see the meaning we pour into something like that? And it's all that meaning that gets questioned under this sort of cultural guise of, well, that's just my perspective. Then, of course, if you're truly going to hold to a true pluralism, then the second thing naturally follows, and that's relativism. And that is that, well, no one perspective is more true than the other. Everything's relative. Now, I, you guys all know me well enough to know I'm not bashing this. I'm not a basher. I'm just simply describing the human condition. It's in all of us. To one degree or another, virtually every person in this room would have at least momentary thoughts wondering about these things. This isn't an us-them kind of thing. We're all in this world together. Or thirdly, so relativism, or excuse me, pluralism, relativism, and then the notion that we all feel, especially through the media and, you know, just popular cultural icons of various sorts, art and music and TV and radio and movies and all that. And that is the rejection of God and the notion that religion is the prime animating evil force on the earth. The religion is bad. And Christianity is just a subset of that larger reality of a thing that is bad. It's the problem in the world. And as we read in our gospel this morning, Jesus' first friends were also confronting seemingly unmovable realities. Things like death. And what could be more unmovable than a tomb? Right? What's more definitive than a tomb? Been to a funeral lately? There is hardly anything in all of human life more concrete than an open hole in the ground. And the confusion that surrounded what happened to Jesus. And so the idea of a resurrection as an antidote to all this is certainly not like a snap. It's not something that comes to us easily. It didn't come to Jesus' first followers easily. And for us, like 21st century Christians, the cross seems way more concrete. Like, I get that. Most, a lot of people would say, oh yeah, okay, I get that. Like, I can picture that. I can picture Golgotha. We've all seen pictures of three crosses enough that we, we get that. And we, we, we even, most of us get what it means theologically. But resurrection, much harder, I think, to get an imagination for that. Especially when experientially what we know is the tombs, in quotes, of our sin and pain and suffering and sickness. They seem way more real. Am I right? Our sin and sickness and suffering and economic hardship and medical problems don't, I mean, am I right? Don't they seem just way more in your face, way more concrete? I mean, can we just keep it real and say that when we start thinking resurrection, we can almost feel like, well, I'm just a child thinking about an imaginary friend. How am I any different than the imaginary friend I had when I was five? Aren't I just denying the very things that are in front of my face, the problems my family has right now, my car won't work, I don't know how I'm gonna pay for school next semester, my job's not secure, those things are like right in our face. And practicing resurrection can feel like pretending. 
In fact, Eugene Peterson wrote a whole book on this called Practice Resurrection. And in this book, he says, when we practice resurrection, we continuously enter into what is more than we are. Something we do not originate and cannot anticipate. When we practice resurrection, we keep company with Jesus, alive and present. The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life. Life that is the last word. Jesus' life. Now, I want you to see how this breaks out in our readings this morning by holding in your mind the reality that we read in the gospel and then the reality of what the disciples were doing in Acts. So what happened here? How did this fear turn to such a public form of courage? Where in the gospels, the disciples locked the doors for fear of the Jews. And here's where we can come back to the choice we have between um, pretending or denying or living in reality a resurrected life. And that's this, that fear is a terrible guide. Right? Think about the times in your life you've been guided by fear. Fear of what you just knew somebody thought of you. So then you hold them in a certain place in your mind and then you relate to them based on your fear. And then remember figuring out, oh, they're nothing like I thought or this is nothing like I thought. And you realize fear is a very bad guide and even a worse master, it's actually a jailer. And these first followers of Jesus, ironically, very much like us today, saw themselves as a persecuted religious minority. That's why they were afraid. It was social and political. Are you feeling me here? It was social and political as much as it was personal. In fact, you might say that it was social and religious and cultural forces that were making them feel personally fearful. And again, I get it. I mean, there's Rolling Stone and the Huffington Post and late night comedy and BuzzFeed and the New York Times and movie and all that on one side. And then there are these things that we hold too dearly. And man, Rolling Stone seems way more powerful than my little personal belief. And Buzz seems, BuzzFeed seems way cooler than my cherished ideas. But there's some antidotes to this fearful thing that goes on in us under the relentless pursuit of relativism and pluralism and the rejection of God and religion. And I want you to look at your gospel reading this morning and find these with me. The first antidote to this is peace. Jesus, when he comes, he stands among them and says, don't worry, I'm going to kick their butts. I'm going to pay another visit to old Pilate. Post-resurrection. See how he likes this, right? You tweet this, I tweet that. You talk about my wife, I talk about yours, right? except for the reality that we're invited into is not marked by that sort of tweeting tit for tat. It, it's marked by a stepping out of that reality 
even as powerful as social media seems and is. We're invited to step out of it and to live in peace. Now, you just go read the comment sections on a few political articles or whatever, and you tell me how much peace is there. So a choice lies before you and me. We either live in the world as it wants to define itself, or we find a resurrection life to live in, one that's marked by peace. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Secondly, if we're going to live well a resurrected life, it has to be based in knowledge. Jesus showed them his hands and his side. He didn't ask them to pretend. He gave them knowledge. Okay, now this is one of those moments I need your full attention. As long as you continue to try to live a resurrected life based only in belief, you will stumble and fail and be halting. Your beliefs are not strong enough to fund a robust Christianity. Only knowledge funds human behavior. Knowledge is what appropriately undergirds human behavior. When you're looking at your gas gauge in your car, you're not working on belief. You're working on knowledge. That there's either enough gas or there's not. Your gas gauge, or sorry, your gas tank could care less what you believe about it. There's a reality there. And it's knowledge of reality that funds Christianity, that funds Christian spirituality. Look at my hands, see my side. Thirdly, continuity. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, and the Greek here is very plain, I don't have time to get into it, but as the Father sent me, even so in the same manner as I am sending you. You are in continuity with me. So look at me. Your little deaths lead to little resurrections, just like me. And should the Romans actually kill you, you're okay, just like me. In the same manner as the Father sent me, protected, loved, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, you're sent the same way. In the same way that I stood in peace in the garden, you can stand in peace in your garden. In the same manner in which the Father was with me, I will be with you as you go. And then fourthly and lastly, and um, this is one reason that Easter time always anticipates Pentecost, is fourthly, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive power from on high. The same sort of power that animated my life May it be in you. So this is what begins to explain then this big shift that when we get to the passage in Acts, we have this passage that, look, the men you've put in jail. By the way, this is the second time the apostles have been jailed in, in the book of Acts. So by the time you just get here to Acts 5, they've already been jailed twice. But yet they're standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Why? Because they've made a decision about who to follow and what's real. Maybe I should say that the other way around. They've made a decision about what's real, Jesus lives, and therefore we will follow him, no matter the cost. But the rulers say, hey, we gave you strict orders not to teach in your name, in, in Jesus' name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. 
Why? Everything we just read from the gospel, this is what gave them the faith and confidence in the face of their own cultural rejection and the possibility of punishment and even death. It's what leads them to say, if you have a pen out, circle this little word, we must obey God rather than human beings. Where did they get that? Can you feel the imperative under the word must? We must obey God, why? What makes you think, given the cultural threats, what's this logic behind we must obey? And here's the game changer. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. Not Muhammad, with all due respect. No Buddhist figure, with all due respect. With all due respect to all the world religions, and I mean that. No one has this claim. We're behaving the way we are, the apostles say. Now look at, now look at me. You believe it when your grandmother tells you or your great-grandmother if she's alive. You believe, uh, you believe her when she tells the story of a, of a birthday party where a famous person was at. So why is her testimony any more or less good than these were 12 reasonable people? 500 reasonable people that Jesus appeared to who are at least as smart as you are. They might not be as well-educated, but you must not think of ancient people as dumb. They were not dumb. They were at least, fundamentally speaking, as smart as you are. They could accurately represent events as they unfolded before their eyes. And what they're saying is this is a game-changer these were not stupid people. They knew that Alexander the Great did not raise from the dead. Nor did Aristotle, nor did Plato. No great historic figure before Jesus would ever have made such a silly claim. People don't rise from the dead. But when asked, where did you get this sense that you must obey God rather than these huge cultural forces? They said, look at your text, we're witnesses. We have personal knowledge. And this sort of personal knowledge, which is always crucial to Christian spirituality, is what undergirded their ability to do what they were doing. And then they discovered what the text in John said would be true is that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who what? Look at your text. Acts 5. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So here's what they're saying. It goes something like this. We would have never imagined a Messiah like this. We would have never imagined that the kingdom of God would come through suffering and death and burial. Then we were totally shocked by that. Bummed out to the nth degree. Then the ladies come back telling us that Jesus had risen from the dead. A couple of our guys go check it out. They confirm it. Now we're in deep confusion. No one can find him. No one knows where he is. But then he appears to us, and we begin to talk about it. Listen to me, come on, feel this with me. We begin to talk about it. We begin to believe it's true, and as we begin to tell it in public, we find a new power in us that we had never known. Suddenly, there's this power of the Spirit 
um, animating and energizing and unfolding and leading and guiding our lives. And we realized that this was tied to our simple little obedience just to say what we had personal knowledge of, that which we had witnessed. And I would just want to gently say to, as your friend and colleague in Christ, I would just want to say gently to any person in this room who's never really experienced what you might think of as the gifts of the Holy Spirit moving through your life, can I just suggest to you, it's maybe because you've just never obeyed him in some way. Because listen, listen to me, it's callings that evoke gifts. Beginning to step out on a calling will evoke gifts in your life that you would have never dreamed that you could have. They don't normally come sitting around. They come to those who are trying to hear and obey God. They draw them out of us. And so obedience in this passage is not mostly moral, right? You need to get that. Obedience here is not mostly moral in the way we think of it. It's just simple action rooted in an intelligent worldview and in a cooperative imagination. Like, I now have it. come on, this is not hard. I now have a different worldview. Come on, think with me here. I have a different worldview. I saw the nails in his hands. I saw the hole in his side. This shifts everything. And so now that new worldview has given me a different imagination that's cooperative. And I find that as I cooperate with God, I find the power, the presence, and the power, and the gifts, and the fruit of the Spirit being more operative in my life as I simply give childlike cooperation to what I know to be true. So in this case, Thomas is an example in the gospel, not of unbelief, but Thomas is an example of a deep yearning for indications of God in our world. Can I just challenge you to see Thomas a little different this morning? Not simply as doubting Thomas, but Thomas, who was actually hungering and yearning for an indication that what Jesus said was real, and that that permeates our relativistic, pluralistic, um, God-rejecting culture. I don't care what they say. I don't care how cool modern culture is. Underneath it all is the yearning that there would be a God who could, I could know is real and good and powerful and consistent. And this is what the disciples knew, and this is what funded their simple childlike obedience to him. I get that the human person today cries out, why doesn't God step in and do something? Why is he mostly silent and hidden? How is that even intelligent? I wouldn't be silent and hidden if I saw one of my kids in trouble. How is it that God is good when he's mostly silent, mostly hidden? How is that possibly a good thing? That he seems almost completely absent, but yet he moves history along in these seemingly insignificant ways in advancing his purposes. And it's just so important for us to grasp deeply that hiddenness is not abandonment. Hiddenness is God's sovereignly chosen way of being present to you. His hiddenness is not abandonment. It's for our good and his good, so that he does not overwhelm us or impose himself upon us, but he allows what we want. He helps us, he gives us space to develop what we seek. 
and to define ourselves. And what we seek in life is the key to our current character. Whatever you seek right now is the key and the greatest exhibit of your current character, of my current character. And it future determines what our character will be. So God's sovereign rule over this world isn't as straightforward or neat or clear as we would like. And most of this has to do with perceived or real injustices that we see around us or timetable issues. Why doesn't God move the way we want him to move when we want him to move? I'm almost done here. I know this has been a lot, but you need to think about this. Do you really want God's immediate and present action? The wish that God would do something is normally pointed outward to them. God, why don't you do something about the Middle East? God, why don't you do something about the seculars? Right? When we want God's immediate action, it's almost always directed to my husband, right? Or my kids, or my in-laws. God, why don't you just do something? But do we really want God immediately judging and stopping our every evil impulse? Or do we only want God to act in special circumstances over there? Well, the parable of the mustard seed, back to it, to close here, is a story that's meant to provide hope in the midst of hiddenness, of waiting during what Peterson calls in another one of his books, a long obedience in the same direction. As God works out his resurrection purposes in life. I mean, come on, think of that parable, the mustard seed and the tree. The farmer has to wait and hope and plead God, let there be just the right amount of sun, but not so much that it would burn up those little baby leaves. Just enough rain, Lord, that it doesn't wash the seed out of the ground, but it nourishes it. And then weeds spring up around it, and insects come. The farmer has to be very patient through this parable. The birds, who Jesus says will find a place of safety and nourishment in the tree, they have to wait for the tree to grow up. You ever think about that? The birds couldn't just, well, that little seed in the ground doesn't do anything for me. I have to wait. I have to patiently wait. While the reality says that there's nothing here but dirt, resurrection life says, no, a tree has been, a seed has been planted here. And something is growing and will grow up in which I can find safety and security and nourishment. The kind of thing, as John said in 1 John, that I would come to know God's perfect love, and as I begin to experience that, it will cast out our fear and worry and anxiety. So I want to say this morning, so what's the sign of the unbreaking of the kingdom in all this? First of all, I would say the massive human hunger for spirituality today. Massive. It's everywhere. It undergirds everything. Believe it or not, I think it even undergirds the brokenness of human sexuality. I think it undergirds consumerism. It's a twisted, longing, hunger for something that I can feel and know it's real. I feel alive when I shop. Or I feel alive when I 
experience sex the way I like it. Feels like the most real me. But it's actually, I think, a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom. And then lastly, you know, the great sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom is you. The hunger in your heart, the faith in your heart, the desire to follow Jesus is a classic sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom. And I didn't look it up this morning, so don't hold me to this, but isn't there something like 1.7 or 1.9 or 2.3 billion Christians on the earth or something? That is a sign of the inbreaking of God's kingdom. So as we have a quiet moment here, I want you to imagine with me how in God, the inconspicuous, something like a tiny seed, how in God, the inconspicuous becomes mighty, becomes determinative when good for others. And how this happens through the steady, slow growth of a seed to a tree or the slow, microscopic leavening of a lump of dough and thinking that thought to now in your mind, notice where in your life do you see God beginning to reign? And how might that help you anticipate the day when the kingdom has fully come? Where in your life do you notice God beginning to reign? And how might that help you anticipate the day when the kingdom has fully come?